1: Hi everyone and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Innes, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Peter Nelson, the author of Computer Games as Landscape Art. The publisher is Palgrave Macmillan. Before we jump right in though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five stars review on Apple Podcasts or the audio platform of your choice. You're more than welcome to leave feedback or questions on Spotify as well. Also, feel free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. And now back to the show. This book proposes that computer games are the paradigmatic form of contemporary landscape and offers a synthesis of art history, geography, game studies and play. Like Pant on canvas, the game engine is taken as the underlying medium and using the Valve Source engine as the primary case study, it analyzes landscapes according to the technical, economic and cultural features this medium affords. I'm very happy that we are about to learn so much more now about this topic. Peter,
0: welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Rudolf.
1: Hmm. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about
0: yourself. Sure. Um, So my background, I started out um, going to art school when I was um, about 18. And I worked as an exhibiting artist for probably about the first decade, decade and a half of my career, starting in as a painter, painting and drawing was my initial um, sort of life. And slowly, I started to branch out into learning 3D modeling, 3D printing and animation. And at the same time, coming from a drawing background, I could see that everything that I was interested in in drawing, I could do in a far more complex way in 3D graphics. And I started to then take my like casual interest in computer games and started mixing that together with what I'd been studying as part of my like university life as an art historian. So it was sort of uh, towards the end of my master's that I started writing about computer games more often than I'd write about artworks. And that led to this book where I thought there was a lot of great stuff that could be written, sort of joining together histories of um, representation of landscape, but looking at how all of those histories might be revisited by changing the case study and looking at computer games.
1: Now, of course, typical for our show, we have to check for your Ludo street credibility. Please tell us, what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now?
0: So, yeah, my answer for this is probably terrible street cred. Um, I work on kind of like just obsessions. So there'll be times where I'm playing a lot of games and then there'll be times where I'm not playing them much at all. Um, at the moment, in my spare time, all I'm reading is fiction, um, mainly a lot of science fiction. Um, so I'm reading like uh, I just reread for the third time the Three Body Trilogy, um, some Octavia Butler, and um, actually reading the Dune Saga for finally. But last time I was playing games um, during COVID, I I sort of got to play quite a lot, which is probably not surprising. I was going back through the Metro series. I think it's probably my favourite first uh, FPS games. Metro Last Light, um, I really, really like. Then my favourite games, I really enjoyed um, Gary's Mod. And that was mainly just from a lot of things that I was looking for in art to me i found in gary's mod in a far more sort of strange and um honest way and then my favorite games that just kind of pop up i tend to be attracted to things with um unexpected mechanics like i really like Quop. you know the idea of a body with um four keys to control it I, i i like things like this um so yeah i'll get you know I'll get really obsessed with the game played a lot then end up writing about it and then i might not have time or um focus to play games for a few months and then i might come back to them that's typically how i work you know
1: it's funny because uh most uh most of our guests here t- tend to start the their answer with exactly this very sentence. Probably I don't have (laughs) Ludo Street credibility at all. But then of course they produce these really extensive and nice and fulfilling answers. So thank you very much. Now, circling back to your uh, book, because it suggests that digital games represent a paradigmatic form of contemporary landscape. Could you elaborate on this uh, concept and how computer games serve as a medium for artistic expression in landscapes?
0: Yeah, sure. So the way this got started was I'd, from when I first went to art school, it it might be partly to do with, um, I'm Australian and landscape art history in Australia has always been a kind of um, dominant thread, both because we're a post-colonial country. So much like North America, there's all of these like intersecting histories. So you have like colonial landscape paintings that in a way like will show what was happening at the time, often things that even the artists didn't know they were representing. Like in Australia, you get all this amazingly weird stuff like paintings that depict Indigenous agriculture, even if the artists weren't quite aware that's what they were depicting, to then like completely um, separate traditions based on the physical environment. Um, Like Australian Aboriginal painting, a big generalization, but probably the most significant um, international export that Australia has artistically. Um, so this was always a big focus in my art education. And so when I started looking at computer games, there were so many things that I noticed that were um were interesting. Like I the first time I wrote about games, I was looking at the fact that RTS games like StarCraft or um, you know Red Alert, Command and Conquer, all of these um, isometric games are using the same spatial system as Chinese scroll painting. Um, Chinese art history was also sort of a minor study of mine for about uh, ten or fifteen years. So I really liked looking at um, histories I knew in a medium that was clearly like the film of its era, um, which I think that a lot of people would agree with, right? Like games are sort of both economically and their cultural impact is um, sort of like film in the you know in the fifties. So what I wanted to do when writing this book, book was find an appropriate landscape history and s- that would sort of fit the, the type of games I was studying and then say, okay, well, if we were looking at landscape in the 18th and 19th century, painting is the place. Um, the, the idea of looking at the landscape as something that's separate from us really sort of blossoms during that period, um, particularly like after the Industrial Revolution, we conceptually separate ourselves. Um, Then you might be looking at film mid 20th century. And for me, it just seemed natural to try to write like a full length book about what would we say about landscape if we were looking at games, everything from how we play them to what they're made of, like how does the software work, to the economies, like who pays for the games, what's the relationship between the players, the companies, all of that stuff. That's exactly how an art historian would look at a painting. You know who paid for the painting? Why was it painted? Where is it today? So that's sort of what I wanted to do with games, and then just to see what I found in the process.
1: Now, this book uses the Valve Source Engine as a primary case study. How does this game engine enable a unique uh, exploration of landscapes, and what insights did you gain from analyzing it in the context of an art history and geography?
0: Yeah, sure. So the first of all. Maybe I'll say I'll say why I chose that engine because the when I started the book one choice would be to try to make across the board generalizations about landscaping games but you end up in such tricky territory because I think it was like Espen Arseth or someone said that games are so varied that you know are we talking about a Furby or are we t- we talking about World of Warcraft you know like there's just such a a variety of experiences that fall under that category, that generalizations start to become a bit meaningless. So I needed some way to um, narrow the scope. And it happened that at that time, I was working with a couple of artists on a CSGO mod. And I was spending a lot of time in um, editing tools for the Valve Source Engine and playing some of the related games from um, Counter-Strike and then um, back to Half-Life 2. And so I decided that the more I got to know about the Valve Source Engine and that there's quite a, f- a good number of steps from you know, really influential first-person shooters like Half-Life 2 to the multiplayer eSport in Counter-Strike to then the sandbox of Gary's mod. Uh, of course, there are other games with the Source Engine, but already there's a lot of moves there, a lot of different steps, different types of experiences. So I figured that that's a good enough range to look at And then I try to be pretty careful in the book and say that if we shifted this to another sort of genre or another engine, we hope that maybe some of the things we'd find would be similar in terms of um, relationships between players and games, but a whole lot of it would be different. Um, So then what I found was with each chapter, I go through these different um, sort of categories of the single player first person shooter to... Um, the multiplayer um, sort of esports shooter of Counter-Strike, then to the sandbox of Gary's mod, and then to the mod that we made. And in each chapter, I try to show that we can isolate different types of landscape experience. Um, And each chapter sort of comes to its own conclusion about if we look at the game as landscape, these are the sort of high-level conclusions that might describe it. Um, And and if you want, I can go into detail on um, any of those in particular.
1: Uh, to be honest, yeah, it would be great to learn more about this because I was listening to you now, and um, yeah, this really, this really is interesting. To maybe, maybe you can, you can dig into one one concrete example just to get um, because this is a bit. Te- I think it's a bit technical now, and so I'm. I want to make sure that all our, our listeners uh, comprehend really what, what was going on there.
0: Okay, so. I'll start with uh, the the first game I wrote about, which was Half Life Two. So, I end up titling the chapter "Could I Apocalypse," um, which was trying to sort of get my hands on some sort of high level description of the particular pleasure of of that game. Um, the first things I start looking at, I, I go through a lot of um, you know really great work in game studies of just analyzing who you are as a player, right? Like you're sitting down, you're at the desk, you've got your hands on one hand on the keyboard, one hand on the mouse. It's probably getting a bit warm under the desk. It might be the middle of the night. And then you start entering this world. So I look at, you know, going from the strange thing of when you start Half-Life to you don't really have any hands. You're just this sort of moving camera. Um, and basically the first things you can do is eventually after, you know, interacting with a few NPCs, You can sort of pick up a crowbar and you're in this obstacle course type of landscape. Um, And eventually, as you move your way through, there's this pleasure of confirmation of your own purpose. Um, The landscape itself, I described it as a landscape that faces you. Um, There's some really nice work by, I think, Alexander Galloway, where he describes the, I think it's the ambience effect, which is if you stop in a game like that, you end up just with this soundscape the landscape stops, you know, you're you're no longer triggering events and you're in this ambient condition that's just waiting for you to do something. And then when you do something, the landscape transforms back into this sort of theme park relationship where you're positioned as this not only in the fiction of the game but in the mechanics of the game as this sort of singular gladiatorial figure who can move through this progression of challenges and there's a pleasure in that. Um, and then looking at the relationship between the fiction, there's with the character of Gordon Freeman and this sort of disaster that's befallen the earth coming from Half-Life 1 where it's sort of a disaster that begins at his own workplace, um, even though he doesn't seem to understand what happens at his workplace. I'm not that deep in Half-Life lore, but, um, you know, there's a there's an odd arrangement there that as the player and the character, you're in this sort of state of never quite understanding how all of this has happened. And then moving to the end of the game, you become, you know, you really develop mastery over the landscape itself. Not only do you forget about which keys you need to press, you sort of develop this fluidity, almost like riding a surfboard or driving a car, that you can move in a certain way, you can quickly tap, change your weapons, do exactly what you need for every single situation, and then all of a sudden the game is over and that sense of purpose has gone and you're left I think, um, oh, I will need to check my references who described it. There was this this phrase, the comfort food oblivion of the PlayStation, where when that finishes, I think this is another Espen quote, it's almost like you've been unemployed. You know, your your job, all of that mastery that you had has disappeared and you perceive that difference. So what I was finding as I was playing it was this landscape that really defines your... um, your singular position in it. It's a single player game. You're the only um, human in there and it's constantly uh, confirming who you are and challenging you. So what I ended up um, describing the landscape as as a final conclusion was a sort of uh, a theme park and what I call a Promethean dystopia that um, in its fiction it's got elements of the sort of Mary Shelley's version of the Prometheus saga of technology gone wrong. overlaid with this kind of heroic gladiatorial um pleasure where the player is um is a savior figure who can who can master this landscape. And so as a landscape what what I sort of describe it as is this sort of theme park for one that delivers a particular pleasure that we all I think um sort of enjoy in our own way when when playing the first person shooter. And underneath that I I really loved things like the Valve Source engine, to me, it's a, it's this great moment in computer graphics where the particular use of um, of like diffuse texture maps and and bump maps means that you can kind of still see this collage of textures quite clearly if you stop and look. The way that a grass ground plane will intersect with rocks, it almost looks like something some kind of um, Photoshop collage made with a clone tool or something. Um, I think as graphics have got more sophisticated and we have things like progressive level of detail systems where we might not notice it so much, I think now looking back at games like that, the way that it's narrative seems to be built upon lots of different cinematic tropes. I look at comparisons between scenes from Terminator 2 and scenes from Half-Life 2. I, um, there's, you know, like running through the the canals as Gordon Freeman or as, you um, as the arnold schwarzenegger and and the kid on the motorbike running through the canals of l a there are really similar moments um so there's this sort of cultural collage as well as a um software collage that I think added in gives you some sort of version of of what type of landscape experience we have and and maybe why it it does generalize a little bit through the genre, right, like lots of other games like the Metro series I think build on this um because there's a kind of the fiction is great. It's a particular sort of pleasurable relationship between a type of fiction and a type of mechanic. And in that chapter, that's sort of what I try to isolate as to what sort of landscape that is.
1: You also do discuss the economics of gambling and product placement shaping esports landscapes. How do economic factors influence the design and portrayal of landscapes within these games? And what are some notable examples of this very influence?
0: Yeah, sure. So, so this sort of comes back to when I was writing, um, when I was doing my master's in, in art history, looking at 18th century landscape paintings, one of the sort of big insights of like 1970s art history was not only looking at what the painting is about, but why was it made? Who painted it? Who commissioned it? Who bought it? This type of stuff. Because often that's a huge influence on why the painting exists. And so for eSports games, I think it's also important if you were to sort of explain to somebody who knew nothing about this, you know, why does the game look the way it is? And why does it exist in the world? The economy around the game is really important. Um, And the fact that Counter Strike survived for such, a, or has survived for such a long time as a really popular game. It's to me this combination of uh, a very minutely balanced kind of abstract mechanic, much like most modern sports. Um, and if you go back into the history of modern sports, particularly in sports geography, they'll write a lot about the standardisation of most. Um, sporting competitions into having the same measurements of the equipment and of the playing field, a lot of that was to do to do with competition. And a lot of that was to do with gambling, that nobody wants to gamble on a game that's, you know, weighted for one side. So the, the balance of sport has always had this sort of economic function in it. And then if you look deeper at Counter-Strike, short, um, you know, not that long ago, I think Valve admitted that there was a huge money laundering operation that was happening through the trading of weapon skins in CSGO. Um, and there's also been some really interesting investigations done into uh, the relationship between the firearms industry and the type of weapons that appear in first person shooters, mainly their proprietary weapons that are you know designed by commercial companies, which either you're looking at copyright infringement, but more likely you're looking at some form of licensing and product placement. Um, and then esports itself, you know, most if you wanted to understand, um, you know, like a boxing match. So if you're looking at games like Counter-Strike, I think taking into, all of, taking into account all of these functions of different economic networks from uh, the use of, uh, you know, tradable in-game currencies to the presence of uh, proprietary uh, products within the game, to um, various ways that the game ended up being used as sort of um, uh, ways to do sort of illicit financial trades, all of this would add a sort of fuel into the game that would contribute to perhaps the the effort that gets into maintaining it as a really, you know, high-quality, well-balanced game. So it's not in any way to, um, to throw shade on the game. It's simply to say that these economies are very, very large and, of course, they'd have some influence on... Um, perhaps the commercial viability of the game. And then I take that all the way down to physical levels themselves. And I look at this, you know, really quite phenomenal abstract symmetry that you have in, um, in a multiplayer shooter like Counter-Strike. All you have to do is go into any, um, any of the maps and look at the update notes. Um, And you'll see really fine things like, you know, adjusting the height of a desk by a couple of inches because it, a player had noted that it gave a particular advantage of a sniping position from one window over a desk and so on. So you can really understand every object within that game. If you remove the textures and just thought of them as um, geometric colliders, um, you've got this sort of fantastically balanced environment. And then if you add the textures back on, you have this odd sort of combination of what I argue is tourism. You know, if you look at the type of levels that get reproduced over and over again. You have touristic sites very often or sort of rustic sites like, um, uh, you know, sort of crumbling ruins and so on. A lot of industrial sites and a lot of, you know, workplaces um, that often end up being the most popular maps. I also take a look at some of the more controversial uses of Counter-Strike, in particular um, the case of a school kid who um, made a, a replica of his high school um, in Counter-Strike. And then I I contrast that to a US government um, school shooter training application, which kind of did the same thing and and sort of discuss how, on the one hand, what is a very abstract sport-like game with rules that are not that different to something like tennis or perhaps to get closer like um, like paintball, to then, you know, when it touches the nerve of what it's representing and can end up in the news and have terrible consequences for, you know, a kid who just wanted to make a mod and and so on. So that's how I try to knit all of that together from the economics to the social context in Counter-Strike.
1: You have mentioned the concept of Promethean Safari before. And I would like to circle back for a minute to this interesting term now. Maybe you could explain not only what it means, but also how it applies to the game's landscape design.
0: Yes, so the Promethean Safari question goes back a little bit to what I was saying about Half-Life 2 in that when I was looking at the single-player first-person shooter, I really wanted to see what abstract sort of shape this landscape had. And the Promethean Safari, it's both a ludological description of a landscape that that faces you, and it's also based on the type of narrative that it uses, which I sort of connect back to things like – Uh, 18th, 19th century adventure stories and and quest novels and and so on. Um, The other thing is that I was looking at from the landscape side, there's a really interesting art historian called Robin Kelsey, who wrote a book chapter about different categories of landscape, uh, modern landscape, all being defined by a sense of not belonging. And he was saying, you know, you can you can not belong in a sort of um, technological sense that, that humans have sort of alienated themselves or not belong in a sort of post-romantic sense. And he had all of these categories that were attempts to describe what the modern experience of of landscape was. Um, and that the book, I should also say, in the first two chapters, I bracket out what type of landscape I'm talking about. And I'm really talking about um, the sort of uh, modern landscape tradition that particularly comes out of North America and Europe, um, as contrasted to, for example, Chinese landscape painting, which I have written about um, in other other books and so on. But the reason I didn't mash all that together is that you end up warping things out of out of perspective so much that your comparisons often ruin the the histories that you're looking at, rather than helping the interpretation. But, um, yeah, so back to art historian Robin Kelsey, this Promethean Safari thing also comes from Kelsey's insight of landscape as something that you don't belong to and this sense of alienation either technologically or historically or environmentally. And I thought that was a pretty good comparison not only to what Half-Life 2 is about but also how the single player sort of exists in this landscape which is really built as an obstacle course to sort of not only test out the player, but to sort of confirm your position inside it. So that's how I arrived at this um, Promethean Safari description for, um, for Half-Life 2.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Your, um, your book delves uh, into how computer games reflect our changing relationship with the environment. Could you uh, discuss the ways in which computer games have evolved to represent this changing dynamic and how they contribute to our understanding of the environment?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that was sort of a, a hypothesis I had when I started writing the book was that if we look at computer games through the lens of landscape and... The computer games are relatively recent you know in the grand scheme of things then we should probably find indexed in there somewhere um, some of the relationships that define our lives and hopefully maybe they bring them into focus a little bit and the reason i had that hypothesis was that when i was studying things like colonial era landscape paintings it's so clear looking back when you look at these paintings, you're not only looking at representations of the physical environment, but you're looking at um, the way that people were seeing at a particular time, what they were seeing, but then you're also looking at, you know, semi or, or completely commercial products of that era. And all of these things tell you a little bit about what was happening historically at the time with a focus on the physical environment. So as I was going through the case studies for the book, that's what I was trying to keep my eye out for. But what I didn't want to do was to start with a, a sort of a pre-cooked conclusion. You know, I wasn't looking for uh, how does this game teach us about climate change? Because to me, that's it's looking for something that you want to be there rather than letting the games just sort of communicate things that we might not have noticed. And the, I think the things that I enjoyed the most was what I found when looking at the sandbox games, because... In something like Gary's Mod, when you progress from Half Life, the the sort of asset library of Half Life Two, um, through the sort of you know player made maps of of Counter Strike, and then out into the sandbox of Gary's Mod, obviously there's a few other source you know, very relevant source games um, in between there, but what you get at Gary's Mod is basically you've you removed the rules and but you keep all the objects. And so you have this thing where the game is permanently in that ambience act where there's no real purpose anymore, there's no particular challenge, and all of a sudden the objects in the game lose all hierarchy. It really doesn't matter if there's a a really great weapon somewhere or a health pack or or anything. Everything becomes quite flat Um, and there's this sense of boredom or almost like a confrontation with yourself where the first thing you, you do in these sandboxes is say well what the hell do i do in this game and thinking of how that related to the sort of objects that these games had captured like if you go onto um the various community websites for gary's mod and start expanding your asset library you can find almost anything but the thing that unifies all of them to me is their sameness you know everything is basically a a display mesh with a collision mesh and then a config file that gives them certain properties, whether it's um, feature slots that mean the object can be picked up or it might just be a totally static prop with default physics. But, you know, whether it's a tree or a shipping container or a refrigerator or a Ferrari, they're all just the same thing. And that sort of flattening of the world into this just rubble of... um, no rubble without a hierarchy of, of value. That I found quite confronting and, and quite interesting. And it, you know, reflects on, I think, you can look at everything from sort of situationist um, theories of improvised social relationships. You can look at postmodernist theory of of pastiche and remix. But you can also look at the peculiar sort of relationship we have to, you um, consumerism in the internet that the asset library where you import objects does not look that different to like an online shopping website where you've just got you know these sort of sterile um extracted objects on a on a white background with soft lighting as if everything's the same and that it's a subtle point but that to me was one of the most profound things I found once the the rules and the and the games are stripped away is just this um recombined rubble world that i think there's something there that is reflecting um the way that we look at the the way that we look at the natural world um there, there's you could say that maybe it's a sort of ultimate outcome of utilitarianism that everything can be dissected into a discrete object and sort of presented almost flat in a grid and you just go into that grid and choose your object that vision of the world i found sort of super interesting and i didn't really see it until I was looking at the games in this way.
1: Hmm. Well, Peter, we have taken up a lot of your time. Um, let's let's uh, get on the finish line, so to speak. What are you working on right now? And of course, what will you be playing next?
0: Yeah. So uh, right now, because I, I do quite a lot of things. Um, I'm working on a new exhibition of paintings at the moment, which seems a bit disconnected. They are landscape paintings, though. Um, I've been doing some work with um, some friends here in robotics and interactive devices. The next thing I'll probably be playing will be um, I've organised a co-op game event uh, here in Hong Kong for one of these um, whiz-bang 360-degree cinemas. So that's probably the next thing I'll be playing, which will be – We'll be looking at our first prototypes like next month. And that's with some pretty interesting indie game makers where, you know, you put a game inside a cylindrical screen, you've got all sorts of really cool possibilities. You know, there's no, the screen doesn't have a left or right anymore. You're in this sort of looped environment. Um, so that's probably the next, the next thing I'll be kicking around with, unless all of a sudden I take a weekend off and <laughs> play some games. I don't know, but that, that's what's coming up.
1: That would be actually a very ridiculous thought, taking time off, of course. (laughs) Well, but that sounds like a great project. So um, I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed it. So please take care and goodbye.
0: Uh, Thanks, and thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure.
1: So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital game studies yourself, and want to talk about your latest publica- publication or research, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere except for X or Twitter. I'm gone. I'm leaving. And again, please share this episode where you see fit. See you in a bit.